0: Welcome to episode 33 of Mike's Notes. Today, Lessons from Mission Control. Very astute listeners will recognize that as some of the theme music to the movie Apollo 13. And Apollo 13 was a Hollywood recreation of the Apollo 13 failed lunar landing. And uh, the reason I'm using that as the different theme music today is because I'm going to look at some lessons I learned while reading Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz. Kranz was a former flight director of NASA. He started with the early Mercury missions and he worked all the way through Apollo seventeen, and if you remember the movie Apollo thirteen with Tom Hanks, Kranz was the guy Ed Harris played, the guy in the command room with a white vest, the guy who said this. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rep. One. The first thing that struck me from the book was how primitive everything was how little institutional memory there was. And it shouldn't be that surprising looking back that before we had flown in space there wasn't any information about flying in space. But I was really struck in that Kranz, an experienced test pilot, somebody who had applied for this mission, even he was still on uneven ground. Even he wasn't sure. And the first point that I noted from the book was that you're never really ready for anything. You're never completely ready. This is how Kranz puts it in the book, quote, That day when I arrived in Florida, I stumbled into the future. I didn't have enough time to even learn the recently coined space jargon before the Mercury flight director, Chris Kraft, gave me the task of writing the operating procedures for Mercury flight controls. Without knowing much about anything, I was telling people how to do everything, writing the rules for the control team that would support the Mercury Redstone launch. Not only had I never laid eyes on the Mercury Control Center, I had never even seen, close up, any rocket big enough to carry a human payload, end quote. So Kranz wasn't really ready, but no one is ever ready for the things that they were doing. Later in the book, he writes, quote, since there were no books written on the actual methodology of space flight, we had to write them as we went along, end quote. Each mission taught the team something that they hadn't known before, and early on it was Kranz's responsibility to keep track of what they learned. It reminded me of a section of Phil Knight's book Shoe Dog, where Nike is uh, purchasing a rundown factory in New England, and Knight tells Jeff Johnson, one of his early employees, that he's going to be the guy that's going to go to this factory and that's going to get it cleaned up and that's going to outfit it to make Nike shoes. And Johnson tells Knight that he can't do it. That would be way over his head. He had no experience with the manufacturing of shoes. He was strictly on the retail side, setting up the first Nike store in California. And Knight responded, over your head? We're all in over our heads, way over. So he wasn't ready for this operation, but we're never ready. The Wright brothers were two guys from Ohio. There was nothing special to them that said that they were going to be the ones who flew first. Uh, There was nothing to prepare them for being ready. They just had to do it. If you are facing something that seems really hard, that seems like you're unprepared for it, that's totally normal. You will never be ready. Two. But. There is a way to get close to being ready, and that's to role-play. A big theme of the book throughout all of the missions was the value of simulations or role-play or practice or reading lines. Whatever you want to describe it, however you want to describe it. The idea of practicing the thing you do it is a very consistent theme in the early NASA history, and Kranz writes this is why. Quote, during a mission countdown or even a flight test, so many things would be happening so fast that you did not have any time for second thoughts or arguments. You wanted the debate behind you. So before the mission, you held meetings to decide what to do if anything went wrong, end quote. So the reason that you want to role play, the reason you want to try to figure these things out is you want to try to answer these questions ahead of time. You want to find the solutions. This is how Crans. Explains a few page later what those early simulations were like. Quote, During the simulation run-through, our instructors sat watching us from their vantage point at the top roll of the consoles and played magnetic tapes into the telemetry and radar systems, which in turn drove the controller's meters and plot board displays. If all else failed, we would be handed a written question like a pop quiz in school. You'd to stand up in front of the entire Mission Control Center team and say, Flight! A new problem has shown up, and this is what I'm going to do about it. You took it seriously. God help you if you couldn't come up with an answer instantly. So all of these simulations, all of this training, were to try to figure out things that might happen before they actually happened. In a sense, Mission Control was trying to avoid the bias of fighting the last war and preparing for a disaster. And these simulations could be all over the place. One time, Krantz showed up for a launch countdown simulation wherein his supervisor strode up to him and said that he had just been in an accident on the way to uh, mission control and he would not be participating. So he had to take his headset off and basically just sit in the back as everybody stepped up to a different role. Another time, during a Gemini flight simulation, an instructor... Uh, in Hawaii had a controller fake a heart attack without telling any of the other centers. So Mission Control was talking to Hawaii, thinking this guy had really had a heart attack during the simulation. And they only found out later that he didn't. But that was the kind of realism that they strove for. They were trying to solve problems before they actually came up. What I really liked about this was that The idea of solving problems isn't just about solving problems, it's also in the act of practicing to solve problems. So when you condition a group of people, when you train a group of people, when you have a group of people embrace the mindset of solving problems, not only are you solving specific problems but you're honing a problem-solving skill. Remember this? Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. In the movie uh, version of that scene they dump this huge container of supplies onto a table after this directive and they try to figure out how to solve their problem using what's on the spacecraft. That's the kind of thinking that they were practicing and this wasn't just for the Apollo missions. During the Gemini missions Crayons built a replica capsule in his office out of plywood and cardboard, but it had all the same switches and gauges in the cockpit area. That way his ground team could train in there blindfolded so that if there was a blackout or if there was a reason the astronauts couldn't see anything, that his people could direct them um, without the aid of visual cues so that they had this ability to solve problems. In a year between undergraduate and grad school, I worked in a jewelry store. One of the training exercises was role play, and I hated it. One employee would pretend to be a customer, and the other person would be themselves. It was uncomfortable, but in many, many ways it was helpful. We talked about how to overcome objections, initiating conversations, and what to say when people said, I'm just looking. Role playing is an important skill for two reasons. One, to apply the specific technique that you're practicing and also to develop a certain kind of thinking, a certain way to come up with ideas and to come up with other options. Role playing also helps hone our pattern recognition. Three. Pattern recognition is like a superpower in that it always saves you time if you do it well. This is the part from Franz's book that reminded me of that. Quote Only one month and four days after I was hired, I was at the procedures console. Thanks to Johnson's unflagging coaching and the training we had done, I had no problems and felt comfortable with the mechanics. But I had a long way to go before I would have that sense of being ahead of the airplane or ahead of the power curve as pilots put it, having the experience to anticipate what could happen rather than just reacting to what was happening in the moment." End quote. Here Franz is pointing out the value of pattern recognition, that you can't anticipate what's going to happen next because you've seen this pattern before. I recognize my own pattern recognition most readily in sports. There are a few moments from high school athletics that still stand out as moments when I thought, I've seen this before, I know what's coming. I've also been a father for about nine years, and my pattern recognition skills there are developing more slowly over time. So even though parenting is a more recent development than my competitive athletic career, it's still a condition where I recognize patterns. Why? So sports change more slowly as the clip from Hoosiers points out. The rim is still 10 feet high. What is it? 15 feet. 15 feet. Strap. put Ollie on your shoulders. Measure this uh, from the rim. Buddy? How far? 10 feet. 10 feet. I think you'll find it's exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. (laughs) Part of the reason that you can recognize patterns quickly in sports is because sports change slowly. No matter where you play basketball, the rim is going to be 10 feet. Different components of sports are always going to be the same. It's the same number of players on a basketball court. It's the same strategy. It's the same rim height. Kids are different. Kids change a lot more than basketball changes. They're still kids, but they go from babies to toddlers to little kids to big kids, to tweens, to teens, and you can develop great pattern recognition skills in one area or one age range only to see the rules of the game change. It's like changing sports rather than playing basketball in a different gym. It's helpful, but less so. I've got another episode about pattern recognition in the work for the podcast, but for this one we'll look at one quote from Ted Weschler, who is an investment manager for Berkshire Hathaway that is his boss is Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger this is what Weschler said to Business Insider quote there is one secret but I'm not telling you investing is a kind of game of connecting the dots the nice thing about it is the longer you are in the business as long as you are intellectually curious your collection of data points of dots gets bigger and bigger that is where someone like Warren is just incredible he has had a passion for investing for well over 70 years He started by the age of 10 or 12. He keeps building that library of data, the ability to recognize patterns in data. Being a successful investor, you need to be hungry, intellectually curious, interested, read all the time, read a lot of newspapers. You need a certain level of randomness in order to connect things that might give you an insight into where a business is going in 5 years that somebody else might not see." Weschler is saying here that Buffett's success is because of his pattern recognition skills. He can connect the dots. Buffett sees the investing landscape in the same way that I see certain athletic fields that I have experiences in. And you likely have your own sets of pattern recognitions that are very finely tuned. It could be cooking. It could be relationships with people. It could be how movies or books are structured, or how retail stores are laid out and arranged, or what the pattern is for someone who's trying to sell you a timeshare in the Miami Beach area. Whatever it is, you too recognize patterns because you've gotten all of those experiences in one area. You are ahead of the airplane, you are ahead of the power curve, and that's important whether it's recognizing what kids might do or connecting the financial dots. Pen recognition is a skill we can build with a lot of repetition. The longer, the better. The more consistent the rules, the better. The more value that it brings to your life, the better. But sometimes, when we see patterns, we make the wrong mistake. And sometimes, it's only act when instead we should just sit there. Four. Sometimes it's better to wait rather than act, but sometimes we mistake this because we like the idea of action and solving problems that way. So to set the scene from Kranz's experience in his book, they have a uh, rocket that has not gone off. It's still sitting on the pad and they don't know why. It could be because something is wrong. It could be on edge. It could go off at any moment. They don't know what to do. So um, he's talking about what Chris Kraft is listening to. Chris Kraft at this point is his boss. They would later uh, be peers and both be mission controllers, but right now he's the boss. Quote, Kraft listened intently as each of the crazy schemes came across the loops. Some of the crazy schemes were like to shoot it with a gun and try to let a slow leak out or to send someone out there in a very dangerous situation. And none of these ideas were, were very good ideas. So Kraft is listening. Uh, Continue the quote, everybody desperately searching for a way out. Then one of the test conductors came up with a plan that made sense. The winds are forecast to remain calm, so if we wait until tomorrow morning, the batteries will deplete. The relays and valves will go to the normally open condition. As the oxidizer warms up, the tank vents will open, removing the flight pressure. With the booster depressurized and batteries depleted, it will then be safe to approach the rocket. Kraft nodded and growled at his controllers. That is the first rule of flight control. If you don't know what to do, don't do anything. We secured mercury control and the blockhouse gang got saddled with the unenviable job of nervously watching over the Redstone throughout the night. Doing nothing worked. By early the next morning, the batteries were depleted, the destruct system disarmed, and the pressure relieved. The capsule and the Redstone rocket had survived with only minor damage to the tail fins." After this incident, Mission Control made it their mission to not guess, but prepare as best they could. And if they weren't prepared for something, to figure it out as they were doing it. Note how nicely this idea works with the number two and number three things we worked at. Number two was role play, and number three was pattern recognition. And if you're going to prepare like crazy and build up problem-solving skills, don't just guess. Don't just do something. Sit there. Because sometimes we guess wrong. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is The West Wing, and besides being a great show it also has taught me a thing or two. Sir, CJ, on your tombstone it's going to read post hoc ergo propter hoc. Okay, but none of my visitors are going to be able to understand my tombstone. 27 lawyers in the room, anybody know post hoc ergo propter hoc? Josh, uh, uh, post after after hoc ergo therefore after hoc, therefore something else hock thank you next i got more credit on the 443 leo after it therefore because of it after it therefore because of it. it means one thing follows the other therefore it was caused by the other but it's not always true in fact it's hardly ever true and people thought Breaking Bad was a great show. The West Wing was a really great show. And the point here is true in the fictional world of the West Wing, as well in the real world. We often misattribute things that happen just because they follow something, even though that initial something may not have anything to do with it. And we have some very successful people who support this through their quotes. Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, once said, quote, Doing nothing can be a very powerful action unto itself, end quote. Warren Buffett said the most influential book on him was Ted Williams' book about hitting. Buffett said, Ted, Willi- quote, Ted Williams described in his book, The Science of Hitting, that the most important thing for a hitter is to wait for the right pitch. That's exactly the philosophy I have for investing, end quote. So, Ted Williams knows to be patient. He knows not to just do something because he's in the batter's box. Physicist Richard Feynman calls this cargo cult science, where we misattribute something happening just because it follows something else. This is what Feynman uh, wrote in one of his letters. Quote, In the South Seas is a cargo cult of people. During the war, they saw airplanes land with lots of good materials, and they want the same thing to happen now. So they've arranged to make things like runways, to put fires alongside the runways, and so on. They're doing everything right. The form is perfect. It looks exactly the way it looked before, but it doesn't work. No airplanes land. So I call these things cargo cult science because they follow all the apparent precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential because the planes don't land. For example, if you're doing an experiment, you should report everything that you think might make it invalid or not. Not only what you think is right about it, other causes that could possibly explain your results, and things you thought of that you've eliminated by some other experiment and how they worked to make sure the other fellow can tell they've been eliminated. Details that could throw doubt on your interpretations must be given if you know them." So we have Bob Iger, Warren Buffett, and Richard Feynman here suggesting the value of not doing something. Bob Iger Uh, gave that advice not to just move on with the project just because you were moving on. Warren Buffett says, don't just go up to uh, make investments just to make investments. Be patient and wait for the right pitch. Wait wait for the right opportunity. Richard Feynman is saying, just because you get a result you want, don't automatically assume that that's a correct result. Don't assume that because something followed it, that means it, it caused it. Just like mission control, we get non-stop data points coming into our lives and sometimes you need to act and sometimes you need to figure things out and then act and sometimes you just need to wait for everything to change. We are biased toward the first action. We do it because it's easy to see the changes but we don't test how much we had to do with them. We just assume because we saw something that that thing caused it. Five. It takes a lot of work to get good at something. And for you to do all of that work, you need support. Kranz writes about this. He mentions his wife numerous times, especially through the first part of the book. And um, he says that his wife and all the other wives were very supportive, and they couldn't have done it without their support. This is what Kranz writes. Quote, In the first two years, we spent almost half our time on temporary duty at the Cape, When we left our homes and families behind, we never knew whether to pack for a few hours or a month. We lived out of our suitcases, in nondescript motels, coping with loneliness. Too little per diem, and too many failed countdowns. Invariably, we would go home to find our wives feeling neglected and frustrated. You have no doubt heard the saying, behind every great man is a woman, and behind her is the plumber. The electrician, the Maytag repairman, and one or more sick kids and the car needs to go into the shop, End quote. So here Franz is pointing out that he needed a lot of support from his wife to take care of all their kids, to keep the house running, to move them and provide something that was at least uh, more comfortable than living out of his suitcase and living in motels and working uh, sometimes round the clock for different mission simulations. At the end of August 2016, Mark Andreessen retweeted a quote of Malcolm Gladwell that I had made about 10,000 hours, and I had turned it into a meme. In case you weren't aware, in 2008, Gladwell released The Tipping Point, and using research from Anders Ericsson, proposed that with 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, you could be world class at something. As the internet loves to do, people supported it uh, to the point where they quit their jobs to begin their 10,000 hour journey. Or they tried to debunk it and criticize Gladwell's pop psychology stories. And so often our truth is somewhere in the middle. Gladwell recently clarified that it's not exactly what he meant. He was a little surprised uh, the way people interpreted the 10,000 hours. This is what he told Stephen Dubner on the Freakonomics podcast. In When I was writing uh, Outliers, uh, I was... Only interested in the hours because I was interested in this notion about social support mm-hmm. that portion of, of outliers was was simply getting people to properly appreciate um, the kinds of sacrifices that are necessary for someone to become great. Here, Gladwell clarifies his work a little bit. His point was that you needed support people like Marta Kranz, Jean Kranz's wife, who stayed home with six kids and kept the house and moved the family so that Gene Kranz could be a dedicated mission controller for the space program. That's the kind of thing you needed. 10,000 hours isn't about how to be great. 10,000 hours is about the environment that you need to be great in, and part of that is that you need someone else to mow the lawn, and cook dinner, and take care of kids, and pay your bills, and do all of these other things. Layer this on, and things begin to look a little different. Guess people from history who succeeded and weren't married. The Wright brothers, for one. In David McCullough's book, he writes how they saw their brothers committed to their families and Either McCullough implied or I interpreted that as the Wright brothers didn't want to get married because they didn't think they could pursue the things that they were interested in because of the responsibilities as a family. They saw that their brothers had to work and provide for their family and fill certain roles that they wouldn't have been able to fulfill and still do the other things they wanted to do. Walt Disney and his animators early on weren't married. They had to hustle and work around the clock. Even the other people in the office, they had to hire other people to support them, to fill support roles, to do their paperwork, to do other things. Rourke Denver, a former Navy SEAL, talked about this on the Art of Manliness podcast. Here's what Denver had to say. You know, early in the career, it's very challenging. I mean, when you first start, you know, the whole training program demands basically full-time very little time off and then when you show up at your first team you're going into multiple rounds of advanced training and then and then you're gonna deploy and go chase the nation's enemies right now so uh, very very taxing on families uh, you have to have an extremely uh, strong Dow that's going to make it through that So why is it taxing on families? Because it's really hard. You have to have someone who is going to pick up the slack in all the other areas so that another person can be a Navy SEAL, or be a NASA flight director, or invent the airplane and flying, or create Mickey Mouse. Those people all had other people that surrounded them in their lives so that they were able to achieve something else. They got their 10,000 hours because they didn't have to worry about other things. Anecdotally, I can't think of anyone this doesn't apply to. Everyone I know who is a teacher is a teacher at least in part so that they could be home with their kids after school and during summer vacations. That's support. Everyone I know that started their own business either employs their spouse in a support role like a receptionist or a nurse or someone who fills in as needed or has a spouse that stays home. Whether it's 10,000 hours or not, if you want to succeed at something, you need to hone your skills at it and that leaves less time for everything else. I'm very much enjoying Gene Kranz's book, Failure is Not an Option, and there's a link for that book in the show notes of this episode of the podcast. These lessons were all from the first two chapters of the book. We haven't gotten into the Apollo mission work yet. We haven't found any of their major disasters in the pages yet. But in the first two chapters, there are a lot of good lessons for life. One, you will never be ready for the thing you are about to do. Once you're ready for something, it's almost like you don't even do it. It's sort of like it's done. So remember, you will never be ready when you approach something you don't feel prepared for. Two, role play is a great way to get ready for something. Not only in the specific problem you're solving, but in the style of thinking that role playing encourages. Three, pattern recognition is a superpower. It saves you time. The more consistent your environment, the better pattern recognition skills you can develop. 4. Don't just do something. Sit there. Sometimes the best thing to do is wait, whether that's for a personal problem, or a business problem, or relationship problem. Some things, the tool you need to use to solve it is just time. And 5. If you want to be great at something, you have to get a lot of consistent practice in. And to be great at that, to get that practice, you often need someone that is going to support you to do all the little things you don't have the time and energy and skills to do. Thanks for listening to episode 33 of Mike's Notes. that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.